Hello, and welcome to episode five of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. Today, I am talking about historical black figures in science. Historical or historic? I'm going to say historical, which means that it is probably historic. (laughs) Anyways, let's get started. Hi, hi, welcome. If you are listening to this on the day that it comes out, it is Tuesday, February 1st. Today is the first day of Black History Month. So to honor this, I thought I would use this episode to highlight some historical Black figures in science who made huge contributions to various fields of work, but did not always get the credit or the recognition that they deserved. Today, I'm going to cover four different people from four different parts of history. Um, The sources from where I learned about today's highlighted contributors of science are in the description, as always. So let's start in chronological order, starting with Dr. Edward Alexander Boucher. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's B-O-U-C-H-E-T. Dr. Boucher was the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. in physics, which he got at Yale in the year 1876. That degree was also the first of six Ph.D.s that were given by an American university, which is a pretty cool piece of trivia. Um, Dr. Boucher was born in 1852 in New Haven, Connecticut, What's good? 203. Lived there for a few years. Not in 1852, but... Um, So Dr. Boucher was born to a father who had formerly been enslaved. um, And he had a mother and three older sisters. His family was very active in the abolitionist movement. Uh, Because at the time uh, in American history, 1850s, 1860s, the abolitionist movement or the movement to end slavery was ongoing. Um, In addition to the abolitionist movement, his family also prioritized education for Edward and his sisters. He was very smart and he took his schooling very seriously. He graduated from the top of his class at... Hopkins Grammar School, and after that, he went to Yale, where he eventually became the first black student to graduate from the university, and he was the first black person to be nominated to the Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society there. Two years after finishing his undergrad, he received his PhD in physics. Now, getting a PhD is hard. Getting a PhD in physics is hard. But getting a PhD in two years, wow, I'm, I'm starstruck, truly. I'm amazed. I'm in awe. Nothing but respect to this man. What an accomplishment. But clearly, Dr. Boucher was very smart, very qualified, very hardworking, an expert 
in physics at the time, but because he was black, he was not allowed to hold a position at the university as a professor. So instead, he moved to Philadelphia to teach at the ICY, or the Institute for Colored Youth. There, he continued his passion for science and science education. He taught physics and chemistry and astronomy, and he advocated for lab spaces for students to get hands-on science experience there. He also engaged with the greater Philadelphia community by giving public lectures on science. So not just within ICI was he promoting science education, but also in the greater community around the Institute, which I'm sure, as you know, we love a science communication and science outreach moment. So we very much respect Dr. Boucher for that as well. Um, Dr. Boucher was a member of the Franklin Institute, which is a science and technology museum in Philadelphia. And he was a member of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences and an active member of the NAACP. Unfortunately, in 1902, the ICY transformed from an academic institution to an industrial and technical institution. So uh, Dr. Boucher lost his job, essentially. He no longer taught there after that time. Uh, after that, he moved back to New Haven, Connecticut, and he passed away at the age of 66 in 1918. That same year, 1918, 42 years after Dr. Boucher got his PhD in physics, Dr. Elmer Imes became the second African-American to receive a PhD in physics. So it took 42 years for another African-American to receive a PhD in physics after Dr. Boucher was the first to do it. So although we know that Dr. Boucher was truly a pioneer for his time in terms of science and science education, there was still an ongoing gap for Black people in science education and science careers in general. The next Black figure in science that I want to highlight today is Dr. Percy Levon Julian. He was a chemist whose work contributed to synthesizing and producing steroids from plant compounds. And this was a major development for modern medicine. He was born in 1899 in Montgomery, Alabama. He was the son of a railway mail clerk and the grandson of formerly enslaved people. He attended DePaul University, where he graduated in 1920 with a major in chemistry. He got his master's degree in organic chemistry from Harvard University, where he went on an Austin fellowship. And after his master's degree, he taught at Virginia State College and Howard University and HBCU. He has a lot of really remarkable accolades and a really... Um, amazing contributions to the field of like science, medical sciences. So let's talk about some of his contributions. Um, in 1929, Dr. Julian went to the University of Vienna in Austria. Uh, and two years later, he earned his PhD. So another two-year PhD. Was there like something in the water at that time? Like that's amazing. Good for you, Dr. Julian. I'm in awe. Nothing but respect. <laughs> um, in 
Um, once he received his doctorate in Austria, he returned back to the States where he and his colleague, Dr. Joseph Peichel, worked at Howard University to develop physostigmine. I hope I'm saying that correctly as well. So physostigmine is an alkaloid that has been used to treat glaucoma. So this pharmaceutical promotes the drainage of fluid buildup behind the eye, um, and that lowers the pressure in the eye's aqueous humor, and relieving that pressure helps treat glaucoma. If gone untreated, glaucoma can lead to permanent eye damage in the ret or retinal damage and cause total vision loss. So his discovery helped improve the lives of many people who experience glaucoma. In addition to contributing to a treatment for glaucoma, Dr. Julian contributed to the development of stigmacerol, which is actually a byproduct of the reactions that he used to make physostigmine. He worked at the Glidden Company in Chicago after completing his PhD, and he and his colleagues there found an innovative way to produce stigmasterol from soybeans. And this is like a new cost-effective way to generate steroids, and it allows for steroids like cortisone and hydrocortisone and sex hormones like progesterone to be made in bulk in large amounts for relatively cheap. Essentially, he developed the technology that still today allows for the cheap mass production of hydrocortisone, which is used a lot today to reduce pain and inflammation, and of sex hormones, which are used in some types of contraception. So another amazing contribution to the field of medical science. In addition to all of these scientific contributions, Dr. Julian founded his own company called Julian Laboratories, which he eventually sold to the Smith, Klein, and French Company. He also helped found the Legal Defense and Educational Fund of Chicago and served on the boards of organizations and universities to advance and improve conditions for African Americans during this time in the early and mid 19 uh yeah 1900s the 20th century 1900s that always gets stuck in my brain um but at this point in American history in the the 20th century um segregation was still very much present and very much enforced so Dr. Julian um, worked with organizations and universities um, to try to improve the conditions for African Americans during this point in American history. So Dr. Percy Julian has had a great career with great contributions in medical science and to the world around him. The third historical black figure in science we're talking about today is a little bit more modern history. Uh, we have Dr. Mae Jemison. She became the first black American woman to travel to space in the year 1992. Best year of my life. That's a joke because I was born in 1993. Okay. Um, May was born in Decatur, Alabama in 1956. She was interested in science from a very young age. And as a child, she watched like the Apollo missions and NASA missions. And she noticed that there were no female astronauts in any of the NASA 
missions. They were all men. So she noticed that, and then she became inspired as a black woman to, uh, you know, go to space and explore space, actually from Star Trek. There's a character in Star Trek called Lieutenant Uhura. Uhura. I've never watched Star Trek, so I don't actually know how to pronounce it. But from my understanding, Lieutenant Uhura, who was played by Nichelle Nichols, um, she was a boss, right? She was like very well-respected, very smart, a leader, and a great role model. And she was in space, right? So like, it's very understandable why Dr. Jemison was inspired by her. At the age of 16 years old, May graduated from high school and moved on to Stanford University in California, where she eventually graduated with her BS in chemical engineering, or Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering, and her Bachelor's of Arts degree in African and African American Studies. At Stanford, she participated as the president of the Black Student Union, and she performed in a performing arts production of Out of the Shadows, which highlights the African-American experience. After Stanford, she went to Cornell for medical school, where she finished her MD in 1981. And two years later, in 1983, Sally Ride became the first American woman in space. And that sort of reignited Dr. Jemison's interest in space and space exploration. So that inspired her to apply for the astronaut program at NASA. After some delays uh, for the application process that were caused by the Challenger explosion, Dr. Jemison was one of 15 applicants that were accepted to the program in eight, 1987. And she was selected for NASA Astronaut Group 12, which was the first group chosen after the Challenger Challenger explosion. Her first mission was on September 12, 1992, when Dr. Jemison and six other astronauts went up to space on the Endeavour mission, where they made 127 orbits around Earth and returned eight days later. That trip made Dr. Jemison the first Black American woman in space, And after 1993, Dr. Jemison left NASA to start the Jemison Group, a consulting company that encouraged science, technology, and social change. And she also taught environmental studies at Dartmouth. Among her many accolades and many achievements since then, the most impressive is her cameo on the newer version of Star Trek. I'm joking. It's not the most impressive, but it is pretty cool, right? You got to admit that's pretty cool because she went from being inspired by Lieutenant Uhura, Uhura, sorry, to being a black woman in space in real life and then to being one on TV. That's like, it's almost poetic. So pretty cool. (laughs) Worth mentioning, I think at least. Um... But nowadays, Dr. Jemison leads the 100-Year Starship Project through the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA. She's also a member of the National Academy of Sciences Institute. She's in the National Women's Hall of Fame, the National Medical Association Hall of Fame, and the Texas Science Hall of Fame. 
and she's received the Women's Intrepid Award and the Kilby Science Award. So her CV, her resume is just stacked, and we were proud of her for it. We are. <laughs> Overall, she's just very accomplished, and like, what an amazing woman, and such a great force to have in the science world. I'm sure that she's an inspiration to many young aspiring scientists everywhere, especially young black girls who can use Dr. Jemison's life and her experiences to prove that they can do whatever they want to, right? Dr. Jemison became something even though she didn't see anyone doing what she wanted to do. And I hope that people anywhere can can hear that story and, and respect it and, you know, be inspired by it. So thanks, Dr. Jemison. The fourth historical black figure in science I want to talk about today technically was not a scientist, um, but she has contributed to the progress of more fields of science than I think any single individual has ever. And her name is Henrietta Lacks. In the early 1950s, Henrietta, who is a mother of five, went to the doctor because she had an abnormality. In her words, she had a knot in her womb. And doctors took a sample from her cervix to biopsy to see if it was cancer, and unfortunately it was but they also took an additional sample. And the cells from that second sample were to be cultured in a lab. So basically those cells were marked as HeLa, the first two letters of Henrietta Lacks's first and last name, um, and stuck in an incubator and given cell food and water and like all the things the cells need to live. And those cells, turned out to be the first ever immortal human cell line. Those cells would live on, they would divide and grow and divide again in normal conditions with enough food at the right temperature without stopping. Never before has science been able to do this with human cells. So this was like a, a big deal, a BFD, if you will, a big freaking deal um, and amazing. The only problem, and I, I should say the one humongous problem, is that they never asked for, for Henrietta's consent. They never asked Henrietta, uh, or they never even told her that, hey, we're going to use this sample for research purposes. They just took it without her knowing. Um, and unfortunately... Henrietta passed away from complications with cancer shortly after. Her cells, however, lived on. And not only did they live on, they were used in research for so many things, so very many things um, that you probably have used before and that you probably do every day. In my undergrad, I read a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and this book was written by Rebecca Skloot. And this book talked about 
Henrietta's life and the life of her family that survived her. And it addresses all of the scientific, scientific impact that her cells have had so far. I still have my copy and I wanted to read a few excerpts. I don't like that word, excerpts. I'm going to read a passage, there we go, um, from the prologue of the book, just to kind of give you, a, you know, a little sampling, a little taste, and I hope that's okay. I hope I don't get sued for copyright or something. Um, like, it's just a page. And these are not my words. These are Rebecca Sklute's words, okay? I'm not claiming that they are. But, um, okay, here's the passage from the prologue. <clears throat> mad dramatic with the throat clearing Sam okay there's a photo on my wall of a woman I've never met it's left corner torn and patched together with tape she looks straight into the camera and smiles hands on hips dress suit neatly pressed lips painted deep red it's the late 1940s and she hasn't reached the age of 30 her light brown skin is smooth her eyes still young and playful oblivious to the tumor growing inside her a tumor that would leave her five children motherless and change the future of medicine. Beneath the photo, a caption says her name is Henrietta Lacks, Helen Lane, or Helen Larson. No one knows who took that picture, but it's appeared hundreds of times in magazines and in science textbooks, on blogs, and laboratory walls. She's usually identified as Helen Lane, but often she has no name at all. She's simply called Gila the codename given to the world's first immortal human cells. Her cells, cut from her cervix just months before she died. Her name was Henrietta Lacks. I've spent years staring at that photo, wondering what kind of life she led, what happened to her children, and what she'd think about her cells from her cervix living on forever, bought, sold, packaged, and shipped by the trillions to laboratories around the world. I've tried to imagine how she'd feel knowing that her cells went up in the first space missions to see what would happen to human cells in zero gravity, or that they helped some of the most important advances in medicine, the polio vaccine, chemotherapy, cloning, gene mapping, in vitro fertilization. I'm pretty sure that she, like most of us, would be shocked to hear that there are trillions more of her cells growing in laboratories now than ever were in her body. So at the end of that excerpt, we hear the impact that Henrietta's cells had on science. But the book goes much further than that, right? It talks about her life, her death, and her children's lives. Once they find out that over 20 years after the sample was taken, that not only are their mother cells still alive, but they're completely changing and revolutionizing medicine. It's a very complex, um, you know, because it like it's so cool the work that like her cells allow us to do, um, but this book goes way past the science and more into like the ethical issues at play here. Um, there's another passage that I want to read that comes from the perspective, the point of view of her of Henrietta's daughter Deborah, uh, that kind of highlights how the family views this. Um, so this is, I think, like a transcript from a conversation with Deborah, um, Henrietta's youngest daughter. 
When people ask, and it seems like people always be asking to where I can't never get away from it, I say, yeah, that's right. My mother's, my mother's name was Henrietta Lacks. She died in 1951. John Hopkins took her cells, and them cells are still living today, still multiplying, still growing, and spreading if you don't keep them frozen. Science calls her Gila, and she's all over the world in medical facilities, in all the computers, and the internet everywhere. When I go to the doctor for my checkups, I always say my mother was Gila. They get all excited, tell me stuff like how her cells helped make my blood pressure medications and antidepressant pills, and how all this important stuff in science happened because of her. But they don't never explain it more than just saying, yeah, your mother was on the moon. She's been in nuclear bombs and made that polio vaccine. I really don't know how she did all that, but I guess I'm glad she did, because that means that she's helping lots of people. I think she would like that. I always have thought that it was strange. If our mother's cells have done so much for medicine, how come her family can't afford to see no doctors? Don't make no sense. People got rich off my mother without us even knowing about them taking her cells. Now we don't get a dime. I used to get so mad about that to the point where it made me sick and I had to take pills. But I don't got it in me no more to fight. I just want to know who my mother was. That last paragraph is really striking, right? It really makes you think. Because on one side, Henrietta Cells have helped millions of people in so many ways. But at the same time, people are making money, profiting off of selling and distributing these cells to scientific laboratories um, or like even selling the products that were validated using these cells. Um, and Henrietta or Henrietta's family, they don't receive anything in return, which is in itself outrageous, but even more outrageous when we learn that Henrietta did not give consent for those cells to be sampled, right? And to be used for research purposes. She went to the doctor to know what was happening to her, right? She went to find out what's going on with my body, what like what's wrong with me. And instead, they took samples without her knowledge, without her consent, and used them for research, pur research purposes. And now, 50, 70 years later, math is hard, um... Math isn't hard. I just forget that it's literally 2022. That's my problem. Um, 70 years later, people are making money off of her for something that she didn't even say was okay in the first place. Nowadays, there are policies in place of like, if you're going to donate a sample or like, you know, partake in research, you need to give your informed consent. Those policies were not enforced back in the day. Clearly, they were not enforced with Henrietta. And now Henrietta and her family, really her family, don't get any benefit from all of the um, incredible things that her their mother have their mother has contributed to um and it's just it's a very interesting and like heartbreaking story uh the book goes into a lot more detail about the family and like the ethics behind it and all of the problems um that kind of are related to this. Uh, there's also a lot of interesting discussion within the science community. Community. You ever, like, think faster than you talk? Like, your brain goes so fast, and then your words... Maybe that's a me problem. Anyway, 
there's a lot of interesting discussion like in the science community about whether we should still be even using HeLa cells, right? Because we now know that they were collected unethically and, you know, like, should we still be using this? Should we be compensating the Lax family? Um, just a lot of interesting discussion um, still ongoing in science. But in any case, I wanted to take the chance to highlight Henrietta Lacks for her contributions to science because she truly is a piece of black history and science that can and will literally live forever. So uh, again, the book is called Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I very much recommend the book. It's written by Rebecca Skloot. Uh, it was a good read. It was fascinating and heartbreaking and um, thought-provoking. So if you know me in real life and you want to borrow it, let me know. I'll lend it to you. <laughs> so now that we've talked about our four historical black figures in science today, I want to get to the final point of today's episode. Um, as important as it is during Black History Month to look back and reflect and educate ourselves on the history of black people in America, we also need to um, be aware and educate ourselves about injustices that are happening today. Um, you know, be aware and bring perspective to the moments that are happening now. Because today is eventually going to be history, right? And we can look back and be like, man, that was so messed up that Dr. Boucher couldn't be a professor because he was black and he had to like move his life somewhere else to do what he loved. And we can look back and say, wow, it's so crazy that it took so long for a black woman to be able to go to space. Um, but in the future, are people going to be looking back at us and saying like, wow, I can't believe that insert um, injustice here was happening. And, and there are injustices that are happening today. Um, so it's important to, you know, look back and, and educate ourselves on the history, but also bring that perspective to today's world. Um, and, and be aware of the moments we're in now. Right? Like, are we doing everything that we can to be inclusive? Are we educating ourselves about today's world and that the injustices that are happening all around us or are we just sort of blissfully unaware are there any barriers in our workplaces or in our lab spaces that prevent or discourage black students black scientists from pursuing their goals and their dreams and most importantly the question of can I do anything to help, whether it's donating my money or supplies or time? Can I do anything, maybe a mix of all of those things, to help address and mend any injustices that are happening in my life that are right in front of me? Um, so in thinking about that and being trying to be more aware of that, um, this month I am donating to three causes, and if you feel so inclined, I encourage you to donate as well. Um, it doesn't have to be to these three. If there are other causes that are more important to you, um, that's totally fine. But I wanted to tell you about the three 
that I will be donating to. The first one is called Color Stack. It is a tech nonprofit that aims to increase the number of Black and Latinx computer science graduates. They use community building and programming to help Black and Latinx computer science students um, to feel a sense of belonging while also improving their academic performance and coding skill set and ultimately improving their career outcomes. So you can check out their website. It's listed in the description below. Um, if you're interested in the courses that they offer or if you want to donate. The next nonprofit is uh, Black Girls Code. They work to close the gap for opportunities in tech for black women and girls. On their website, they have a graphic that shows that for students earning degrees in computer science, 18% are white women, less than 3% are black women and less than 1% are Latina and Native women. So there's clearly a huge gap um, here in terms of uh, you know, racial uh, and, and gender, um, but mostly racial, right? Like less than 3% black women and less than 1% Latina and Native women. Um, that's striking. And what Black Girls Code is doing is they're working to fix that gap by encouraging leadership innovation, and creation in STEM fields, and their goal is to educate one million girls by the year 2040. Black Girls Code has program areas for artificial intelligence, uh, web design, software design, many, many topics, um, and they've had over 26,000 hours taught to date. Their website is also linked below, so please do check them out if you are interested. And last, but certainly not least, is the Hidden Genius Project. The Hidden Genius Project aims to mentor and train black male youth for careers in technology creation, entrepreneurship, and leadership. And this organization is based in Oakland, California. They have programs for black high school students to learn about computer science and software development and leadership and community partnerships. So um, their website is also listed below if you're interested in learning more about their programs, how you can get involved, or how you can donate. Um, yeah, so as I said, links to all of those organizations will be in the description if you'd like to donate, uh, if you are able to donate, if you're in the position to, uh, if not, I understand. Um, but those are the three that I will be um, donating to. All right, well, that's all for this week. Uh, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. I'd love to hear your feedback um, on this episode and all of the others, too. Um, I'm very new to this podcasting thing, so any and all criticism that you may have is very helpful to me at this point. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening to today's, to today's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.